I think very tactically, where it happens for us most is in organizational design, you know, and really trying to act boldly. And when we know that we need to make a change, not waiting to make the change. That's an absolutely huge piece of the story. I think so often as leaders, we're the last to know about organizational problems and we're the slowest to act on it. Bold action in organizational design gets you really the keys to the castle. Welcome to the Secrets of Success podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ken Keyes. Well, today we're talking to the senior VP of HubSpot. If you don't know who HubSpot is, it's one of the market leaders in CRM, you know, full integration solutions. Salesforce would be one of their competitors, Infusionsoft, et cetera. So Christopher has an amazing story of how he blended his passion for music and technology into his role with HubSpot, who, by the way, has over 3,000 employees and now on its way to do a billion dollars in sales or 600 million, but really their goal is a billion. So we have an amazing guest. Now with that, one of the things that Christopher's on the show about and what he is really communicating is just this whole concept of effective leadership, of modern leadership. And what does that mean? That means that we need to know ourselves, who other people are, and just be socially awake, emotionally intelligent. And to that vein, I just want to encourage you that you would consider what we've just launched this year, our new e-course on Why Aren't You More Like Me, which is one of the books that I've authored in using our personal style indicator. And in that course, we have over five hours of video where I take you through a step-by-step process of understanding yourself and then also understanding others and how do you build credibility, relationship, and influence with others. So go to the show notes. You can go to crgleader.com and look for online or e-courses. And that's available for you. And my encouragement is that this could be transformational for you. You can do it individually, corporately, as a group, etc. Now, as always, we thank you for being a listener. If you like what we're doing, please pass it on, share, subscribe, leave a positive remark or review on whatever platform you are listening on. Thank you again for listening to Secrets of Success. Now, here's your guest, Christopher O'Donnell. Welcome to the Secrets of Success podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ken Keyes. Well, we don't always get a senior VP to kind of hang out with us to serve you as listeners, but we do have one today, Christopher O'Donnell from HubSpot. So Christopher, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you, Ken, so much for having me. I've been looking forward to this. Well, we've heard a lot about HubSpot and we'll get into HubSpot and what it's doing and your role in it in a minute. But before that, what we like to do with our Secrets of Success listeners is say, hey, Let's get to know our guest a little bit. So, Christopher, you're in Boston now, but tell us a little bit about growing up. Where were you born and what was sort of childhood like? Yeah, so I, uh, I grew up in, uh, in New England predominantly. I was born in San Francisco, California, but my parents uh, didn't, didn't really enjoy it that much. And so we moved back east um, where they had more of their roots down. And I moved to New Hampshire when I was about six years old and largely grew up in the southern New Hampshire, Boston kind of area. Um, Mm. Went went to a few different schools around here. Christopher, what did did your parents do? Well, the reason we moved to New England was my mom actually got this 
uh, gig as the principal of one of the these kind of ancient um, institutions, these boarding schools in New England. So she was the first woman to be ahead of any of these sort of old boys boarding schools, and she ran Ooh. Phillips Ex uh, yeah she ran Phillips Exeter Academy for ten years from eighty seven to ninety seven. Oh, married um, to a principal and a teacher. I don't know, or not married, but uh, having a mother. Yeah. Uh, with that, I'm not sure, Christopher. Were you well behaved? Yeah, no. So I, I was definitely, I was definitely well behaved. I was uh, under under close supervision, of course. Um, but, you know, I just loved making things ever since I was a really little kid. I would abscond into the basement with a glue gun and try to make, you know, try to make airplanes or anything else I could think of. And Were you a, you know, were you a Lego, Lego guy? Huge Lego guy. Yeah, my son is six now, and he's an even much bigger Lego guy. Uh, my daughter, son who's six, I have my one million pieces that I'm just gifting you. Oh, okay, great. Yeah, that'd <laughs> no, be wonderful. I'm saying that that's what you're doing. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, yeah, maybe no, maybe. and I, I got to pull them out of my feet. You know, there's nothing worse than stepping on a Lego. Um, oh, I get it. But uh, no, and we just bought the kids their first glue guns, and they're they're loving it. We make costumes together. It's it's a ton of fun. But that's kind of the the root for me is I just love making stuff. And as I got older, I realized that you know I myself am okay at making stuff, but the really fun thing to do is to go find people who are much better and try to get them to play with me. <laughs> and, and that's really my role today as a leader is really just trying to attract amazing people mm. who are more talented than me and, you know, do my best to keep them motivated and working well together and teaming well and having clear goals and guardrails and sort of building a culture where makers can, can make and, and making cool. work fun and, you know, and, and getting great yeah. business results as a result. Well, super. And I know, you know, your, your passion around leadership is, you know, evident for sure. Uh, as I digress for a moment is what did your dad do? My father did all sorts of different things through his career, uh, including a stint as a journalist, which then evolved through um, some interesting adventures into a role as an equity analyst. So he spent the, the bulk of his career in equity research and actually building teams. And he had a, you know, his, his thing is managing creative people, you know, getting the best out of people. And he hired a very interesting group of people, um, you know, to, to his teams over the years. And I definitely learned a lot from him and, you know, recalling back to the people that he hired because he, you know, he hired a professional pool player and a Seinfeld writer and, you know, all of these interesting, brilliant people, and then was able to sort of teach them equity analysis and how to look at a company and develop a perspective and all this stuff, which of course I didn't understand what equity analysts wow. did until, until we went public at HubSpot. And then I'm like, Oh, okay. And then there are these people watching us and coming up with all sorts of, you know, interesting perspective on what we're doing. And then his whole career made a lot more sense. But uh, yeah, growing up, it was just a bunch of nice people in suits, you know, that, that seemed to believe in my dad and, and want to follow him. So, um, cool. but cool. Yeah, now, were you encouraged by that? Were, were your parents sort of, you know, your, your mom being an educator, I'm married to a teacher, so I, I get that. Is, yeah. Were they ones that were really encouraging you to go wherever you needed to go? So when you were in high school or just say, hey, mom and dad says, hey, Christopher, just, you know, go for it. They were very, uh, very encouraging, you know, um, very encouraging. It, it, seeing some of what they did in their roles left a real impression on me. So, for instance, seeing my mom give speeches, which she had to do 
with some regularity to pretty large, you know, pretty large crowds. Um, she was really good at it, you know, and there was this power of people just aligning around this message. And that got me really into public speaking from an early age. Um, and it's a huge part of my job today. And I have a coach and something, you know, we take that craft very seriously, really do my best at it. I definitely got that from my mom. And then from my dad, just seeing how he never talked about the work. He always talked about the people. And he had such a, a loyalty. And the, the, the loyalty was so clearly mutual there that I think it kind of set a mold for me that in my professional career, really being involved in other people's careers and catalyzing those is ultimately going to be the most rewarding thing. And I really believe that. Like, I, I maybe I, I got that from my dad in an early age because it's just fundamental to how I view all of this stuff. I love the work. I love product management. I love software. I love our customers. I love all that stuff. But the main vehicle for me in, in leadership is really just seeing people develop and being, you know, being their agent and rooting for them. Cool. Well, we're going to get into that shortly. I know you're anxious to kind of go there. Now, Christopher, when you were in high school, a lot of times, were you kind of called the geeky kid or, or not? Where, where did it fit in? <laughs> yeah, I was the, I was the artsy sort of weird kid. I was really into magic, not the card game, but like actually doing magic tricks. I got super into magic and that was a little strange. Uh, and then I was always really into music. And so over time, by the time I got to college, it was like, oh, you know, that's Christopher. He's in a band, you know, and, and that was mm -hmm. a big part of my identity. And it was kind of fine. And there was a place for it. But as I was starting out with music, I didn't really have it wasn't mm -hmm. really much a, a part of my identity. And, you know, as I say, I was a, kind of a loner-esque. I would have my group of friends and, you know, we'd be trying to make things in the art studio or, or in the music building or, you know, whatever it was, we'd be trying to make stuff. And so I, I think I started out as very geeky and very uncool. And by the end of high school, I was like, fine. You know, I was, I was well, normal you're, enough. You're playing music. So what kind of music do you like to play? What's your genre? Yeah, I'm in this band now called The Providers, and it's a original pop rock band. So it's all original tunes that I've written. And I, I'm in this band with this 62-year-old lifelong rock and roll kind of legend, this guy, Brad Helene. And so we're, we're sort of this, this odd couple, but we've become very close. Um, and he has become a huge advocate for the music and really just getting us into the studio and getting great players around it. So, you know, you could think you two or Tom Petty, that kind of, that kind of vibe. Mm. And it's a lot yeah. of fun because, you know, we play inside, I play guitar and I sing, Brad plays bass and we have, you know, session musicians who play, anything else that you can imagine under the sun. And it's, a, it's just a really cool hands-on kind of maker experience. And in many ways, a microcosm of a lot of the creative challenges that we have in something like building a piece of software. You know, it's, it's yeah. about putting egos aside and hearing great ideas and just working together. But it's, it's a ton of fun. And I, I play a lot. Cool. Now, at college, what did you take in college? And how did you decide that's what you wanted? Interestingly enough, my major in college was computers and music, which is sort of a strange program, but I was attracted to the program because those were sort of the two things by the end of high school I was really into. I was really into computers and, you know, coding and building websites. Uh, it, it was an early time to be, you know, building websites and, and interacting with that kind of technology, but somehow I fell into it really early, like 13 years old. 
and, and then music and the intersection of those using computers to make music, but each of those things being very interesting on their own. Uh, and so that's what I studied. I studied that and I also studied, of all things, Brazilian Portuguese and ended up living in Rio de Janeiro for a year um, and learning Was that after, after college? That was during college. So it was a semester abroad kind of situation. Okay, so what was, what was down there? What was motivating you to do that? I finished my degree requirements relatively quickly because uh, it was what I had come to school to do. And so I took all of these computer science classes and music classes and I got about halfway through college and realized, okay, I have this great opportunity to, to take on more and to do more stuff. And so I asked my advisor, you know, what should I do? And he was the head of the music department. He said, here's what you should do. You should learn German and go study classical music in Austria. And I loved the idea, I loved the approach to his recommendation, and I just copied and pasted that into Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. <laughs> so, yeah, well, okay, let's hang on, let me think. Uh, Germany, yeah, okay, Brazil. Oh, yeah. yeah, let me think about that one. Yeah, as a young yeah. person. Yeah. Oh, yeah, literally, I literally lived, you know, a block from Ipanema Beach and got to, you know, learn oh, so much. Yeah, it was amazing. Everything and sucked. <laughs> and, you know, I studied, uh, studied guitar, I studied bass, I studied drums, I was in a, a, a drum, you know, bloco, like a, a group, street group, and just learned a ton. It was awesome. It was really yeah, hard. When you, when you think about it, Christopher, you know, just picking up and going, a lot of people can do it, but not everybody can. What was maybe some of the characteristics or qualities? Where did the courage come from just to pick up and just go for a year? Well, it, it was... Uh, you know, so much of this is driven by social norms. When you see lots of other people doing it, it doesn't seem so scary. Mm. Uh, and, and there was a program, very well-established program of interchange between the schools. And so there was, you know, some confidence that, that I was mm. going to get down there and have some train tracks to run on. The reality actually was we got down there and they said, you know, here are your apartment keys, school is that way. Uh, and so there, there was a lot to figure out, but that ended up being, of course, the, the fun of the whole thing. The but, adventure. Um, yeah, and you know what? The classes were awesome. The classes and this I was in that. Portuguese, I'm sure. Uh-huh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. Yeah. And I, I studied history of industrial design, which was fascinating. And I'm still just such an industrial design geek without... I, know, I, I didn't go to RISD or I never studied it formally beyond that one class, but I, I love it to this day. And a bunch so of other you, stuff. In. What do you think the metaphor is for the history of industrial design as it applies to leadership and life today. What was it that you pulled out of that that you could share with the listeners? Oh, boy. Um, well, you know, you had these movements, whether it was Bauhaus or, or anything else, you know, over the course of, of the evolution of design. And that's really important to me. You know, it's like I'm a big believer in that idea that you become the average of the five people you spend the most time with. Mm. And, and it's something that it's a piece of advice that I give people, you know, millennials or folks in their 20s, folks who are starting out their careers it's just a reflection that, that I share with them to say, you know, a huge turning point for me was realizing I'm really interested in this profession. I'm really interested in these types of skills. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to actively spend my free time and my work life around the people who are ahead of me and being around people who are a level ahead of you or two or maybe five years ahead of you in your career or thinking the same way as these, you know, as these movements in design happened, uh, just being open to influence, I think, and putting yourself really close to that influence and being 
thoughtful and strategic about what influences you want in your life really pulls you along, you know? And so I want to be a part of a cohort. I want to be a part of a group of people who are really pushing me. It's, it's like being in a band. You never want to be the best player in the band, you know? You want to be the worst player in the band because that means you're hanging out and learning and, you know, playing, playing uh, at a higher level. Well, Christopher, you, you've left a gem on the table for the listeners, which they've heard from other guests that we've had on Secrets of Success, and that is just the critical importance of the people that you surround yourself around and how they're influencing. Now, the opposite is also true, right? Where we have individuals where they're hanging out with, and I don't want to use the word sort of as a noun, but really as a verb around losers, where individuals are not going anywhere, they're dragging you down, and really you made the intentional decision to do the opposite at a young age. Yeah, I, I guess that's fair. I mean, it, maybe it's losers, and then maybe it's also folks who just, you know, I remember freshman year of college, everybody in the dorm became really good friends because we're all in this new experience together and we're mm -hmm. kind of, you know, we meet each other and we do orientation together. And then by about halfway through the year, we're not hanging out with each other so much because the theater kids are off with the theater kids and the, you know, the music folks are off with the music folks and the athletes are off with their teams. And so, you know, that, that kind of thing can happen too. But yeah, I think there is a sense too of, you know, parents are always being, watchful of who their children are friends with. And at a certain point, you got to take that responsibility over yourself and say, you know, what am I doing on the weekends? You know, what am I doing? Am I hanging out? Is it fun? Uh, is it, you know, people are going out and day drinking or, you know, going to fairs and festivals and all this kind of stuff. And at a certain point, it's like, if you want to write software, you should be hanging out with people who love software enough to be writing it for fun on the weekends. And that shift for me was pretty transformative. Wow. Wow. So you finished college, you've been down to uh, Brazil and back. Uh, what then after college? I came back and I did music freelance after graduation. I recorded a lot of classical music, uh, jazz, all that sort of stuff. Realized it was a very hard way to make a pretty tough living and figured at some point I was going to need to get out of that um, and started thinking about that. And then I also actually, this was around 2004, which listeners may recall was the poker boom where they started televising poker mm, and WPT. everybody started playing. Remember that the WPT. So I came yeah, back from, yeah. And I came back to this world where there's this whole thing was booming and I got into it and started reading books about it. And so for two or three years I played, you know, what amounted to a, a full-time or, or part-time plus job uh, playing cards and that, that taught me more about myself. My dad says that he thinks that that was the most educational thing I ever well, did in my well, life. Well, you do not have that in your bio, Christopher. Uh, so, yeah, I should put it in. <laughs> so, so you said your dad said you've learned a lot in that. Now, a lot of people go in and lose their shirts. Uh, what was the game that you played the most? Well, I played Hold'em. You know, I was playing Millimet Hold'em tournaments. You know, that's what was being televised. That's what got popular. And uh, the first tournament I ever played, I had the either fortune or misfortune of winning, though I didn't know much about the game at the time, but I, I, I had a, a good, good night of cards and ended up winning this tournament. And so that gave me a little bit of a, you know, a little bit of a budget to invest in the game. And I started playing Then I became friends with people who were playing very seriously. And, uh, you know, I learned the game. I'll tell you that the, the big breakthrough though, that with, with regard to leadership and poker, was this shift from 
accepting opportunity to creating opportunity or sort of recognizing value to creating value out of situations. And I'll tell you what I mean. I played a home game one night and one of the fellows there ended up being a professional player. He very shortly after this, he moved out to Las Vegas and became a writer and tournament player professional. Very smart guy. And I played with him for, you know, maybe six hours. And afterwards, we all get up to get in our cars and go home. And he pulls me aside and he says, hey, look, I just want to, I want to talk to you about your game. And I said, oh, okay. He said, it's very clear that you've read the books and you're playing, you're playing the game well. You're, you know the math, you're doing things that are sound and make a lot of sense. He said, when you figure out how to open up your game and start to create opportunities, he said, you could be a really, really great player. And I realized that I had been very guarded and safe and by the book in my play. I'd been very sound. And I had mm -hmm. missed this entire layer that he was seeing in the game, which is it's not just about my cards. It's about his cards and her cards and what happened two hands ago <laughs> and, you know, who's tired and who's winning and who's losing and all of these dynamics. And it, at a certain point, it becomes, and any, you know, good poker player will know that what I'm saying is, is pretty obvious, but you create these opportunities, you know, and you, and you develop these situations and you become part of a narrative and you become one of the storytellers in that narrative. And that narrative can go all sorts of different places. It's not just about taking down the hand with, with the best cards. So that I, I still think about that all the time. You know, mm. the chips that you have are what make you chips. It's not the cards that you get. It's the chips that you have. Chips make chips. And so at work, we talk about that all the time. You know, chips make chips. We need to act boldly. We can't so wait. Explain that a little bit more about chips make chips. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the value that you have, the uh, political capital, let's say, you know, I mean, I, I hate to think about it that way, but if, if your team has um, succeeded, keep the momentum, you know, chips make chips. If the company is happy with how your team is operating, set the bar higher. Use that as a way to get the team, you know, interested and excited and moving. Uh, another, you know, not so much here, but that I see in other companies, if you see companies like Salesforce, for example, where they do these big acquisitions or Jeff Bezos buying Whole Foods, for example, mm -hmm. you know, I may not get the anecdote totally right, but, you know, Jeff Bezos buys Whole Foods for $16 billion and the stock goes up, you know, $18 billion. So he gets, he, <laughs> he bought Whole Foods for a negative $2 billion of market cap. Um, you know, that's an opportunity where chips make chips. You're, you're winning, you're, you have vision, you have resources, and you can use those in very accretive ways. I think very tactically where it happens for us most is in organizational design, you know, and really trying to act boldly. And when we know that we need to make a change, not waiting to make the change. That's an absolutely huge piece of the story. I think so often as leaders, we're the last to know about organizational problems and we're the slowest to act on it. And, and more. you know, bold action in organizational design gets you really the keys to the castle. Mm, cool. Now, let's digress for a bit. And thank you for that, Christopher. Uh, I appreciate your energy and just your articulation around these matters. Let's go back and say, okay, you're, you're kind of hanging out, you're doing these things. Where does HubSpot come into the play here? HubSpot came into play, well, you know, eventually my, eventually my girlfriend said, uh, 
I might not want to marry you and start a family if you're going to be, you know, living in your mom's basement playing cards all the time. So I said, okay, that's fair. And I got a real job as a marketer, uh, as an entry-level marketer at this cool little software company. And then from there, I got into product management, which is a common way to get into that. And then I got into startups. And from startups, I got into um, one startup where I was the head of product management, and we were acquired by HubSpot. So that's how I ended up here. That was 2011 um, and began this whole adventure. Mm. Now, according to some documents, when you got with the company, with HubSpot, but by the way, just before I kind of jump into that, what did you learn through you know, these startups and what you were doing in there? What were some of the positives but also negatives that you were exposed to and can share with the audience that, through that experience? Yeah, I, I, I learned that I'm, I'm a starter and I need help finishing, if I'm, if I'm brutally honest. It's very easy for me to get excited about a new idea. And mm. in that period, um, it worked in my favor in the sense that I kept starting things and trying things and doing side projects and nights and weekends and hacking, you know, uh, it, hacking in the sort of building sense with my friends and just trying to touch as much technology as possible, as many customer use cases as possible, as many kind of, and so I learned a lot about branding and early stage product development and technology, um, Ruby on Rails and PHP and Python and, you know, JavaScript and all this stuff that I hadn't played with as much. And that was just mm -hmm. totally fun. And over time, I've had to really mature into, okay, well, you know, this is a marathon and not a sprint. So if we're going to do a company and really, you know, this is a decades-long thing. And so we need to be eyes wide open about building a culture, building an operating system, you know, and having, having there be real organizational excellence. Uh, and then that actually became what I was super interested in. So I still love building things. I still love working on stuff from scratch and, you know, getting the first customer onto a new product or something like that. I love that. My day-to-day -day is much more about being the product manager of our culture um, on this team and, you know, hiring and firing and recruiting and all that kind of stuff, which I've found to be equally fascinating. Well, let's just, that's a perfect segue. So Christopher, you are acquired by HubSpot. How did that go? Was that something that was seamless and easy or was the integration of cultures difficult? How did that go? It was really hard. It was really hard. Uh, we brought in a very different culture to the product team. It was popular with some people and unpopular with other people. Uh, and so there was a lot of turnover. That was really hard. It was an organizational change effort that was disguised as a technology, you know, what we call these days a replatforming. You know, okay, so here we have this company and it's, let's say, $50 million in revenue, growing very quickly. Marketing is really strong. Sales is really strong. We need the product to really keep up. So what's our operating system going to be? What's our culture going to be around that and delivering that product? And it was a new set of technologies. It was a new set of processes. And that led to the organizational change um, component, which I would say, honestly, was we were awkward at. We, <laughs> we were not experts in that. We were an early stage technology company that you know, knew how to pick the phone up from customers and try to make them happy and build products that, you know, that delighted them. That, that part of it we were very focused on, but there was no organizational change DNA. And so over time, you know, I, that experience has been very formative 
You know, the, more, the better your organizational design and organizational change management skills are, the more you can do with your team. And the more you can put people into places that they're going to succeed, you can have leaner teams, you can get a lot more done, you can retain people, you can create a much more autonomous culture. And if you don't have kind of really good change management, then it's tough to make, like I was saying earlier, it's tough to make the changes that everybody working close to a situation knows needs need to happen. Right. And so, so back to your question, the, the acquisition was an eye-opening moment for me. For about a year, it was just really hard. It very emotional and, and really tough. Now, you know, fast forward nine years, it was all super worth it. And the culture has scaled mm-hmm. and changed a lot. Um, the technologies were, you know, we, we made some good decisions back in the day and it's, it's worked out. Well, now HubSpot is being publicly traded 50 million to 600 million, uh, 10x growth. So congratulations. Oh, thank you. That's nice of you. It was, <laughs> I had a, a very small role in it, but um, it's been really cool to, as they say, see the movie. And well, just kind I, of I see in your bio it. here, it says that you are the single person that's most responsible for this. I'm just kidding. The host was just being a smart aleck there. So with that, uh, Christopher, you, 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 you talk about this you know, this organizational development skills or the lack thereof, and it's one of our expertise, you know, as a leadership expert and working with individuals and helping people to play to their strengths. What are some of those skills, you know, even if I have a small micro company to a large organization like yourself or larger, what are some of those skills that we really need to be thinking about and embracing so that we can have a culture of success? That's a great question. Here's how I think about it, and, and, you know, I'm learning every day. It's like a puzzle where every day we get a new piece, <laughs> and it's starting mm-hmm. to come together. How decisions get made is perhaps a, a very kind of salient thread and something to kind of focus this conversation on, perhaps. Who is involved at what stage in a decision? And along that path in time, you start with an idea that then gets discussed and then gets refined. There needs to be a decision made at some point. And then directly affected people ought to know before everybody knows, let's say. And what if they disagree with it? How do you handle that? Um, and then you slice that even thinner and you, and you say, well, uh, directly affected people need to weigh in on before the decision is totally made. Or when directly affected people uh, find out about something, do we make it clear that the decision has been made? And all along that, so if you think about, okay, we're going um, to move a product from, one, you know, from being developed in one location to being developed in another location. Okay. Well, who is involved at what stage to give feedback on, on that idea, refine the idea, and then how is that rolled out to the people who are affected by it in a way that's really caring and honest? And if you get that right, then you're able to run those processes and get better and better and better at that communication. And it doesn't, it, you know, by process, I don't mean, you know, flashpoint check meetings and Gantt charts and all the rest of that. I mean, there's, there's an aspect of that. You know, we have communications plans. It's a super important part of it. But it's much more just being mindful, you know. Are you able to discuss something with a few people at different levels of the organization and really go deep on the idea and the decision 
without it generating a rumor mill and affecting a whole bunch of people and creating a whole bunch of thrash. Um, you, men- you mentioned something, Christopher, three things that I want to make sure the listeners capture from you, and that is <clears throat> caring and honest. <laughs> wow, just uh, imagine that in an organization or, a, or a culture that is caring and honest. It's not all of them are. And then the other one that you said is this, real, this, this consideration of proactive communications. That it's the responsibility right. of leadership to put the information out, not to be having it the other way where you, as you said, the rumor mill. I recently worked with an organization and a lot of their senior people left mm-hmm. because all these things were being changed. Exactly that. The whole organizational org chart was changed without the involvement of the people that it affected. I mean, it's just bewildering that there are even individuals who are in those senior positions that are that way. So you use a word, Christopher, called modern leadership. What do you mean by that? So, you know, when we think about success in life and failure in life, and then we could obviously take the opposite of what you said, you know, lack of communications is one of the contributing factors of failure. Describe that to our listeners when we think about, you know, modern leadership and what people are doing or not doing that's causing them failure or success. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a huge question. What I think of as modern leadership, others might think of as distributed leadership or servant leadership. You know, there, there are different bodies of thought and, and perspective that sort of feed into this. Um, and, I, and I think that those are, are really great. To me, modern leadership is very different from, it's in many ways, the opposite of a command and control structure where, you know, you have an executive order that then gets passed down, that then gets passed down, they, you know, and it's sort of cut up into more and more granular pieces um, and people are given their work and judged on, you know, whether they did the things that they were commanded to go and do. And you shift that model a little bit, or a lot, in fact, and start to think about goals and guardrails, you know, and still providing, this is what's really hard about it, though, is that, and I do not have this figured out, but it's that people do want direction. They want leadership to, you know, and by people, I mean the sort of modern workforce that's out there of information workers and, you know, millennials and, you know, all, all of that kind of zeitgeist that we're, that we're living in. People do want direction. They don't want to be left alone, but they also want room to do their best work. You know, we talk about psychological safety, being able to bring your authentic self to work, being able to be yourself, being able to have ideas, you know, understanding how to take an idea that you have when you're walking the dog and bring it into the enterprise, bring it into the company and have a path to it actually succeeding, you know? And when you think about value creation, you want that. If you're the leader of an organization, you want all the best ideas and all of the best, you know, customer anecdotes and reactions and conversations that people are having. You want all the best ideas to come and serve customers. That's, that's your ultimate goal in terms of creating value, at least in my belief. Um, Christopher, and I interrupt our guests because you always no, leave, this is great. You always leave these gems on the street, and if I don't, otherwise the street cleaner is not going to get them. And one of the questions I have for you, Christopher, and I'm not sure if you would have a recall of that. Can you think of somebody you work for where the opposite was true, where it was really this command and control? Can you think of somebody in your work history where that was the nature of the culture? Uh, it would be. I, I do not last. <laughs> okay, so here's the point. Here's yeah. the point is, what did it do to the people around you, and what did it do to you 
when the opposite was true. Yeah. I mean, it, it's so stifling. It's so I mean, stifling. What you're saying, in and in, I'm sort of leading the witness here. Yeah, I love you, it. You left. You quit. It, you, you didn't bring your best. And it's interesting how a lot of people still operate in that, but you made a, 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 a very important point earlier is that we need to develop these skills. You know, the assumption that people just naturally move into this quote-unquote modern leadership is they're not equipped. They've not, it's not been modeled in many cases. You're modeling it for others in your team now. And as you said, you haven't all figured it out, but that's actually one of the reasons why you're successful is humility brings growth, right? Versus you know it all. So that's the opposite side. When I'm thinking about our listeners is, you know, when you see that, what are we doing to individuals there? And hey, listen, I screw up too. Uh, constantly because you're, you know, as the owner of the business, you're kind of moving forward and maybe your impatience get in front of you. So uh, I appreciate you sharing those insights so that, you know, when people are thinking about if it's a small team or a large team, the principles apply, do they not? I think they, they fully apply. And it's a, as I say, it's a puzzle that's unfolding and, and there may be somebody who has it all figured out. I certainly don't. I can tell you what's hard about it. Um, what's hard about it is, is, navigating and changing your posture and moving between giving people autonomy and then becoming involved, both of which people want, but at different times and based on the nature of their work, it is appropriate and desirable for, you know, teams or people to have more or less autonomy. And so, you know, if, if you look at my 360 reviews, which I'm, I'm lucky enough to get tons of feedback at work, and the best thing about being on my team is also the most frustrating thing about being on my team. It's, you know, Christopher trusts me to go out and take swings at stuff and it's going to stick up for me if I fail. And, you know, it lets me do my best work and blah, blah, blah. And then the downside is Christopher lets me fail. Christopher doesn't give me the answer when, when I sense that he has the answer. Like sometimes I just want him to, to fly in and help me through this thing. And so it's that dance of, you know, how do you, how do you do that? Because especially in this modern leadership style where you give people room, like, hey, go think about this. Go take a month. Go talk to customers. Come show me the path forward. That's really the difference. It's not go down this path. It's here's your challenge. Here are your resources. Here are your avenues and, you know, your feedback channels and your levers and all of that. Now go play in the sandbox and then come show us, like Steve Jobs said, you know, you want your people coming to you, telling you what needs to get done. But that's hard for folks, too. There, it mm -hmm. turns sour very quickly when they're hitting dead ends or when their third swing is the third strike and another miss and all the rest of that. I guess said another way, I'm much more comfortable with people on my team failing than many of those people are with themselves failing. Mm -hmm. Now, there's lots of leaders that wouldn't necessarily have been developed to that level, Christopher, and I suspect it's difficult where, you know, as a leader, you have to bite your tongue and just the discipline to not come in and save the team member. It, it's discipline and it's also, you know, there's a Skinner box element to it too, where I know before I open up my mouth and tell somebody to do something, I, I better be right. And if I don't, you know, what's always in my head, Ken, is does this person have more context, you know, for this thing we're talking about? How much context do they have on this? And, you know, the, the frontline people 
when you get down to tactical issues, the frontline people have way more context than we do as leaders. We have charts and we have market opportunities and we have, you know, all the rest of that. But when, when you have a product manager who is building this one thing for this you know, specific set of customers, they know everything in the world about that one thing. And so, you know, you, you got to come in with some humility and say, just because I saw something in this other product or, you know, mm -hmm. there's this new technology that's bright and shiny or, or whatever else, you do need to push the teams, but also in a way that's respectful of the depth of the customer context that your frontline people have. Agreed. Agreed. Now, Christopher, we only have about five minutes left in the show. So what we typically do here is we want to make sure that if they want to find out more about you and what you're doing. Now, for those listeners who have not heard of HubSpot, which I don't know if there are any, but if there is somebody, what is HubSpot, first of all, Christopher? We are a, well, we're a software company. We're 3,000 employees. We have eight offices around the world. And our mission is to match how we market and sell to how modern humans shop and buy. There's been this huge shift away from the yellow pages and events and, you know, salespeople having all of the information about a product. There's been this huge shift over the past 20 years where now consumers have all the power and we're going to search engines and we're going to our friends and we're getting all of our information as buyers. And so what we use as businesses to match that experience and offer that experience has really changed. Fundamentally and concretely, what that means is we offer a full CRM suite. And we have marketing tools, we have sales tools, uh, we have service tools, we have a tremendous depth of free products to do everything from stand up a website to collect leads off that website, email nurture them, you know, track opportunities in a CRM, service them through, uh, th through a help desk. It's that whole front office suite. Cool. And I, we, my daughter works in a company, a millennial, and so they love working with your product. So that's uh, great. Oh, that's I'll, great. I'll speak, that's I'll awesome. Speak positive of it. We'll go off air. I think I have a friend who is working for you now, so we won't we won't share that to the. Public. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> that's awesome. So with that, Christopher, uh, now uh, you wanted a couple of URLs as far as your music. And and it's interesting. You talked about music and creativity in this whole digital side. My nephew has now created his own his first album of music, all digitally created. He's flown all around the world to do digital music concerts, these raves that go like four in the morning, which is like this alternative music space. So it's pretty cool that you are both technologists in music, and I get it, and I get it the crossover. So uh, if people are interested in the music side of things in you, where do they go? For the music stuff, come to theproviders.com and pop your email address in, and, and we'll tell you the whole story of the group through video, through, through art, through photography, and of course the, the music itself, which is coming out November 5th. We're dropping our first single, which is called All I Know. So you can look for that on, uh, on Spotify or anywhere you get your music. Of course, and of course this show will be you know, put online forever. So depending on when you're listening on this, just go get that. And then from HubSpot, you said, hey, you wanted some people to connect with your company. Where do you want them to go? Well, check the product out, or if you're interested in the culture, come to uh, HubSpot.com slash jobs and see if there's something there that's appealing. Start a conversation with us. You know, we have eight offices around the world. We're leaning into the remote workforce. So, you mm. know, theoretically, you could work for HubSpot from anywhere in the world. Yeah, <laughs> with that, Christopher, what would be 
you know, when we think about leadership and the impact that we have, both personally and corporately, beyond what you've shared so far, what are sort of the final pieces of wisdom in the next few minutes, the last few minutes that we have that you would like the audience to be able to act on, to consider, to take action on? What would those be that you would share with us today? I think the biggest thing, (laughs) I had dinner with our CEO years ago, and we were talking about this servant leadership, this modern leadership stuff, and he said, I see you doing this, and it's really, it's something I'm really interested in, and for some reason, I I just said to him, I said, you know, I just manage my people like I'm going to work for them, and he kind of laughed, and he took a bite of his food, and then he thought, and he looked up at me, and he said, you know what, Christopher, you probably will. And he's totally right. You know, I mean, I look at my team and I just think, man, I'd love to work for these people. And now what can I do to get them ready for that so that I would want to come be their first product manager hire? And then that gives, gives me the, uh, a pathway into a conversation about how, how to develop their careers. And I really recommend that, you know, for business owners or, or anybody out there who's leading a team and managing, just get super involved in people's careers and figure out what makes them tick and lift up those people around you. That's really the, the difference between management and leadership is, you know, leaders are lifting up the people around them. You want to lead the league in, in assists, not, not three-pointers. So that's what I would leave the, uh, the listeners with is move away from the three-pointers to assists. <laughs> very good. Though the odd three-pointer is not bad. So Christopher, thank you very much for hanging out with us today. That was a lot of fun. I appreciate it, Ken. Looking forward. Yeah, just stay on, uh, on air with us. Well, ladies and gentlemen, Christopher O'Donnell, Senior VP at HubSpot. And of course, we hear all kinds of positive things about that company and that organization. And hey, maybe there's a job opportunity or maybe you have a friend that you want to refer to them or uh, maybe you're hiring Christopher for your next wedding. I don't know. Maybe that's going to work for you. So the other thing is, is that, you know, here at CRG, we believe in people playing to their strengths, developing themselves. Christopher really left a lot of gems for you to think about as far as, you know, being caring, being honest, operating in integrity, communicating. So my encouragement is that you would do that. So as always, we thank you for being a Secrets of Success listener. Please share, pass it on, leave a positive review on whatever platform you are listening on. I'm your host, Dr. Ken Keyes. Thanks for exploring the secrets of success with us. If you want to keep the momentum going, log on to crgleader.com. Scroll to the bottom and sign up for our inspirational emails. You can also take your success to the next level by following us on Facebook and Twitter and connecting with Ken on LinkedIn. We hope you have a great week and look forward to you joining us next time for the Secrets of Success podcast with Dr. Ken Keyes.